Scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 9. John chapter 9. The first seven verses. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6 says, When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning. We uh, we got the call, I suppose, about mid-May. Uh, I was actually walking out of an olive garden when we got the call on a Sunday evening uh, with, with Kelsey and my sister and her husband were in town. Um, and we were very excited to happily respond to, to the question of whether we wanted to be here with yes. And then we just kind of waited for two and a half months. Uh I say just kind of waited. We had plenty uh, to do at Hera. We had our VBS at Hera that we planned for uh, and had there and had pretty good turnout for that, too. I'm pretty happy with that. Um, that being said, we are so thankful to be here. Um, before we get started, I'm not going to take a lot of time to do this that would not be appropriate during our worship. Uh, there are so many different things I could say uh, about the past couple of months and whatnot, uh, but it, it would be wrong of me to not get up here and at least just say thank you for all the help uh, that you've offered in, in moving us both uh, by way of means and muscle. Uh, those of you that helped us move into our house uh, about eight days ago uh, know exactly how much help we needed with that. Uh, thanks to Kelsey's teaching stuff, among other things. Uh, many of you saw some of that. Um, but we really, really appreciate it. Uh, I have no idea what would have happened without that help, and and I'm glad I don't really have to think about that too much. I do hope you have your Bibles open to John chapter 9. That's where we will be spending the bulk of our time this morning. Um, We may deviate just a little bit from that as we go along in our lesson, uh, but we will likely spend the entire time in John chapter 9. Now... Some of you can figure out exactly how old I am now that you, my date, my birth date's right there in the bulletin. If you just open it up, uh, you can see that I'm the ripe old age of 25 now. Uh, but even at this age, I, I've, I've lived long enough to remember different uh, sort of national tragedies that have happened, uh, sort of bad things that have affected the nation uh, as a whole. Uh, the one that sticks out in my mind is September 11th, uh, ni- or 2001. Um, we were in fifth grade, is that right? We were in fifth grade. Of course, I didn't know her then. Uh, but we were in fifth grade. I remember uh, just how crazy that day was. I, also, I, I, I remember 
just talk of what how bad things could get, what might happen. I also remember uh, Hurricane Katrina happening just a few years later on. Uh, Hurricane Sandy more recently. Uh, you know, we've we've had different shootings, we've had different natural disasters, we've had different attacks. All of these terrible things that have happened that you probably identify with as well. I also think back to uh, some more personal things that have happened. Uh, either in my own life or in the lives of others that I know and love. Uh, it, you know, family members and close friends that have gotten cancer, uh, family members and close friends that have had horrific things happen to them, even a family member or two or a friend or two that's passed on from this world uh, in that time frame. And when we look at these things on the whole, whether it's me in my own life or you in your own life, we sometimes ask ourselves the question, why do we suffer? Why did this happen? Why did this have to happen, we might ask sometimes. Now, I mentioned those sort of national disasters, national tragedies, and sometimes you'll get some evangelist on the TV, uh, and they'll come up with, well, this is God's judgment against America, or something like that. Or maybe they'll come up with, well, you know, these people were terrible people and it needed to happen anyway, and they'll just, you know, they'll explain away something that they don't really understand. And we think to ourselves, that's ridiculous, but it's nothing new. As we see here in John chapter 9, we're going to focus on the question that these disciples ask of Jesus about this man that's been born blind. We've already read the whole passage. I want to read verse 2 once again. It's the verse we're going to focus on for the bulk of our lesson. And his disciples asked him, this referring to the man blind from birth. They asked him, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned this man? or his parents, that he was born blind. And already looking at the question, you've noticed that they assume something. They assume this is someone's fault. Somebody made a mistake. We don't know who. We need you to tell us who did this. But somebody made a mistake. There's there's no way this could have happened without someone having made a mistake. Now, on a very, very general level, they're right. Sin is suffering. Uh, they're, they're right about that. Before the sin in the Garden of Eden, mankind did not suffer. Romans chapter 5 tells us that by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Before there was sin, there was no suffering. So in the very largest sense you can possibly imagine, they're right. This is someone's fault. And we also know that those who sin will suffer in the end. Uh, There are many examples we could look at. Matthew 25 has the division of the sheep and the goats there. That's just one. We understand that there's going to be a final judgment. But they try and take these generalized ideas that this is someone's fault, that all suffering is someone's fault, and they try and apply it to a very specific situation. Because suffering is from sin, his blindness has to be Maybe his fault, maybe his parents, but it's got to be someone in particular's fault. So let's break down the question. They ask first, who sinned, this man or his parents? This man, there's a long-standing belief that you suffer because of your own actions. This is nothing new biblically. You can go all the way back to the book of Job and see Job's three friends constantly trying to tell Job, 
the reason you're going through all of this is because you did something wrong. This is your fault. You might not be able to figure out what you did wrong, but this is your fault somehow. Um, we take, in our society today, we take sort of the opposite approach to this, right? That a lack of suffering, um, that doing pretty well, being pretty well off, is somehow a, a directly correlated to my spiritual well-being. We know this is a prosperity gospel, right? Um, that, you know, I, I, the more things I have, the more that I have in this life, the, the, the higher status that I have in this life is a direct result of my spiritual well-being. That somehow my physical well-being is a direct reflection of my relationship with God. The Jews held on to this a little bit. It's not as pervasive uh, in in Jewish thought as it is, uh, I think, definitely in our own American society. But we see hints of this uh, not in Scripture itself, but by those present in Scripture, such as Job's friends. And so we, we see here, the man was born blind. Obviously, it's his fault somehow, perhaps is the belief. Um, there's a couple of different beliefs with regard to this. The first is that it's possibly just a misinterpretation uh, of Psalm 51.5, where it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, that somehow he came out of the womb sinning. right? That somehow the day he was born, he was sent. Uh, he was sinning. In fact, many of our Calvinist friends actually believe this. And there are many different uh, counter arguments that we could bring up for this. There are many different scriptures we could turn to. One of the ones we turned to this morning in our class in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, which talks about Jesus living this life yet being without sin, should be enough, given that Jesus himself was born given that Jesus himself was human. Sometimes we'll say when people mess up, well, that's only human. Well, sure, but you don't come out of the womb sinning. There was also a belief at the time, uh, we know this from different rabbinical scholars, there's also a belief at the time that a child could somehow sin inside the womb. Um, so say if you have a, uh, a pregnant woman, right? There's a few of those here, I think, right? Uh, say if you have a pregnant woman, uh, that decided to go and worship in a pagan temple, decided to go worship some false god. Certainly that would be wrong. That would be sinful. And the belief was that the baby inside the womb of that pregnant child was also participating in pagan idol worship or pagan god worship at that point, and so they would be guilty of sin as well. Don't quite know how that works, but it was a genuine thought that was held on to. And so we look at this and we say, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. How can you say that it's this man's fault that he was born blind? But we do the same thing. When something goes wrong, we assume, oh, maybe when something bad happens to a person, we might say, well, they, they, what have they done to deserve that? Sometimes we'll look at someone that's, kind of, we'll say, down on their luck. Someone that's struggling in this life, maybe physically. We don't know much about them spiritually, but we can tell pretty obviously they're struggling physically. And we just kind of assume they did something to put themselves in that position. 
they made the mistake. Might be true, but I don't know. And so they, they assume, okay, it's either this man or his parents. And this is another commonly held view, again, not within Scripture itself, but present within those who are in Scripture. Uh, we understand, looking back, we understand Ezekiel 18.20, for instance, which says, The soul who sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. At the same time, Numbers 14.18 says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And so while it's true that I'm not responsible for my parents' sin and my parents aren't responsible for my own sin, we see even in the Old Testament, the sin of my parents can have an impact on me. That uh, I may have to suffer the, suffer, suffer the negative consequences of my parents' sin. That's very plain. We understand this today. We, we, we talk about this uh, with regard to those that are living in poverty, those that maybe have parents that uh, participate in drug dealing, those that have parents that participate in crime, uh, what have you, that it's a vicious cycle, that it happens from one generation to the next to the next. And we talk constantly, if you're, if you're in education classes or whatnot, you hear constantly about how do we break the cycle? How do we make this better? And so we understand that children suffer because of their parents sometimes. But they ask this question, and as we mentioned earlier, they assume that it has to be one of the two. Who sinned? Whose fault is this? This is obviously someone's fault. I just need to know who. And a lot of times, before we move on, a lot of times we, we really come down hard on people that ask these sort of questions in Scripture like this, or they assume something and Jesus kind of takes it from a different angle. But notice, it's Jesus' own disciples that's asking this question. It's those that follow Jesus that ask this question. And Jesus, of course, corrects them. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I want you to notice a couple of things about Jesus' response. Number one, he says, you're wrong. It's not either of these two parties' fault. You assumed it was someone's fault. It's not. There's no sin involved here that directly relates to this. Of course, there's sin in the man's life. There's sin uh, in the parent's life, or there was sin. But his blindness is not directly tied to that. And then he says, but it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. I don't know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I have a hard time believing that these disciples would have ever come to that conclusion on their own. 
that they would have ever figured out for themselves that this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in, in him. I have a hard time believing that this man, or these disciples rather, would have looked at this man and said, well, this isn't really anyone's fault. It's just how it is, given their mindset, given what we know about them. They don't know. And they wouldn't know unless Jesus told them. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? They mentioned those uh, those evangelists, those theologians that you'll see sometimes that come on your television or come on the radio or come on uh, you know, whatever other form of media you want to look at, maybe write an article, I don't know. But that'll maybe come on and try and explain why some tragedy has happened. Sometimes we know why tragedy happens. We know why bad things happen to people. Sometimes. If I smoke a pack a day for 50 years, and I wake up one morning and I realize I don't have lungs, I, I don't have to wonder why I am suffering. That's pretty clear. At the same time, when it comes to Some things like, I don't know, children getting cancer when it comes to these big national tragedies that happen. When it certainly comes to natural disasters. I don't know. And for me to claim that I know is arrogant. I don't know why these things happen. Sometimes, again, we're tempted to look down on those who are suffering because we think, well, they're, they're, they obviously deserve this somehow. In reality, we don't know for sure. If, if you were to take a look, if you were to open up Job and read through it, it's not going to be a short read, but I encourage you to do it. Open up Job sometime. Take a look through it. Read through the book of Job. Read all the discussion that takes place between Job and his friends. Read about how, co- how God comes in and sort of straighten things out. Remember, uh, he tells Job there to gird up your loins like a man on one occasion. And you'll read Job suffering loss and then having everything restored back to him even more so. One of the things, one of the most interesting things you will find within the text of Job itself is that Job is never directly told in Scripture why he suffered. We know. If he wrote the book, perhaps he knows. Of course, Satan knows. Those that are present sort of outside uh, of Job's realm, if you will, those that are not, uh, you know, those non-human entities we read about in Scripture, I guess is the best way to put it. They know. But Job himself is never directly told why he suffered, and yet he still chooses to praise God in the end anyway. Whereas we read Job's friends constantly trying to explain away, well, here's why this is happening, here's why this is happening, and they're wrong. We know that Job suffers because he's righteous. 
by the way, um, this is another point that can probably preach by all by itself. The best thing that Job's friends ever did for him was to go and sit with him in silence for a week. Once they started opening their mouth, that's when they got into some trouble. Because you see, they became arrogant once they started trying to explain things away. Look, when you see a loved one going through tragedy, when you see someone uh, that, that's struggling with something, sometimes there's a natural urge to want to go over and explain it away. Go over and say, hey, this is why this is happening. Sometimes we'll even go so far as to say, "This, it's God's will that this is happening. How do you know? Now, granted, we know we're going to suffer as Christians. We understand that much. But please, the next time you see a loved one in a hospital that's suffering, that's struggling, please don't walk in there and tell them that it's God's will that you're here. Here's the other thing that we read. Verse 3, about midway through, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. On this particular occasion, it was God's will, wasn't it? It was God's will because something greater was going to be accomplished. Now, granted, it's not God's will for everyone to suffer. It's certainly not God's will for everyone to sin. It's not God's will for anyone to sin. But saying that it's God's will for something to happen is a very different thing from saying that God's will can be accomplished through what has already happened. That I can grow from something that's happened. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 26 and read one of the verses that's most often taken out of context in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 8, let's pick up in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do, know, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so you'll you'll hear people sometimes approach every situation saying, well, everything's working together for good. That's great. What's good? What is that? That's a very, very vague term. What is the good that's being worked together for? Oh, you know, good. Verse 29 defines it for us. When it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That good that things are being worked together for? It's a little awkward English, I'm sorry. But the good that's being worked together? 
so that we might become more Christ-like. See, whenever I go through suffering, whenever I go through tribulation, whenever I go through uh, some difficult stretch in my life, whether it's something very personal, something very painful, or something that maybe I can't even assign words to. There is some good that can come out of that. I can grow from that suffering. That I can learn to be more like Christ through that suffering. It doesn't somehow justify the suffering in and of itself. It doesn't somehow make me understand why this has happened to me. Many times when I suffer, when you suffer, we're not going to know why. At least not in this life. But something good can come out of it. Absolutely, that's what happens in John chapter 9. And Jesus makes a point of this. Picking back up in John chapter 9 and verse 4, if you turn there. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. If you read on from verse 8, through the end of the chapter, uh, this man goes through quite the ordeal. See, he seems to be the only one that's willing to actually speak up about Jesus, and all he, he really does is testify about what's happened. And in the end, he expresses faith in Jesus because of his suffering. Faith in Jesus because of what Jesus has done for him. Faith in Jesus because of the evidence around him. You'll notice verse 38, or verse 37 rather. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and as he who is speaking to you, he said that is the man, Lord, I believed and he worshiped him. When you find yourself suffering, when you find yourself going through some tragedy, some ordeal, some trial, you may not be able to understand why. You may not be able to understand why you have to go through this. You may not be able to understand why you maybe deserve it is sometimes the language we use. Or you may understand that you don't deserve it for some reason. And sometimes we try and explain it away, and sometimes we just need to realize we don't get to know. We don't get to know in every situation what we're going or why we're going through what we're going through. We don't get to know in every situation why we struggle. Two things, one leading into the other, and then the lesson will be yours. We do understand that when we go through some kind of trial, 
some kind of struggle, some kind of suffering that we can grow as a result. If for no other reason than the fact that I might be able to help others as a result. When I go through some sort of suffering in my own life, maybe I've gone through some sort of struggle in my own life, and I see someone else that's going through something very similar, although it might not be the exact same, I see someone that's going through something very similar, I might be able to help them in a way that no one else can. And certainly some good has come of that. Not that it's good in and of itself that the thing happened, but some good has come of that. And ultimately, as we grow, we recognize that even our suffering should drive us to worship him. As it did with this man. We see a man born blind doesn't understand why he's blind. The disciples don't even understand why he's blind. They just assume it's someone's fault. And by the end of that, even with everything he goes through, He's driven to worship Jesus because of what he's done for him. That should be the point, isn't it? That as Christians, whatever suffering I might go through, what Jesus has done for me is more important than any of that. What Jesus has done for me is more important than any of that. And so the question is, what has Jesus done for you? Or at least have you recognized that? You recognize that he came down from heaven to earth and went to the cross for your sake, for your sin. Have you been baptized into that death, burial, and resurrection that Romans 6 talks about? If you haven't this morning, and you'd like to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we'd, we'd love to assist you. We'd love to help you out with that. Perhaps this morning you are a Christian and you're asking yourself, why am I going through what I'm going through? Or maybe you're asking yourself, I don't know how to get through this. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to help you out any way that we can. We need to know. We can't help unless we know what's going on, or at least unless you reach out. Maybe this morning as a Christian you've sinned and in your life you, you, you need to ask God's forgiveness, perhaps in a public way. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you as you ask God's forgiveness. If you have a need, please come forward as we stand and sing.